Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Hey, Sober Stories crew. Welcome back and happy Friday. I hope you're starting to see the temperatures drop like we are here in Texas. Something about September makes me feel optimistic and excited. Maybe it's the uh, not 100 degree heat. Today's a fun one. You'll be really proud of me. If ever there was a guest that I would fangirl over, today's guest would be the one. But you know what? I held it down decently enough. I've got a conversation with author Michelle T. And you would never know that the warm, funny woman I sat down with, in fact, has a CV of dozens of celebrated literary and spoken word works. Michelle is the author of the popular tarot, How To, Modern Tarot, which is where I first found her work, the cult classic, Valencia, and many more works of fiction and nonfiction. She's a 2021 Guggenheim Fellow and has received awards for Penn America, Lambda Literary, and other spots. She hosts the Spotify podcast, Your Magic, as well as the live tarot room, Ask the Tarot on Spotify Live. She is the mind behind Drag Queen Story Hour, Sister Spit, and other literary inventions. Michelle T's most recent book is Knocking Myself Up, a memoir of my infertility out now. Michelle and I talk about punk culture in the 90s, how her sobriety has evolved over the years, and what it's like being a sober writer, and so, so much more. Quick content warning, we do briefly discuss suicidal thoughts in this episode. As always, know that we support you skipping episodes that do not support your well-being. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Michelle and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories crew, I am so excited for this conversation today. I told Michelle ahead of time, I'm going to try not to fangirl too much here, but I'm a big fan of your work. Michelle, welcome to the Sober Stories podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Amazing. So for those of us who don't know you, who are unfamiliar with the work and your writing and the space that you hold, can you give us kind of the high notes of who you are, where you are, what you do? Sure. Yeah. Um, Okay. I'm a writer primarily, and I have written a little bit of everything, but I got started writing and primarily do still write memoir. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, my first, I wrote my first memoir when I was in my 20s. It's called The Passionate Mistakes and Intricate Corruption of One Girl in America. (laughs) And then after that, I wrote a book called Valencia that's become a bit of a touchstone book for, you Mm -hmm. know, young, young queers coming to San Francisco specifically is what it's about. Mm -hmm. And I have a new book out that just came out a couple of weeks ago called Knocking Myself Up, a memoir of my infertility. So I do a lot of that. I also am a tarot reader. And through that work, I have a podcast that I've been doing for, gosh, a little over a year now, I think. It's called Your Magic. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of tarot in it and a lot of other witchy woo stuff and lots of interviews with love it people I love. And I do also a live tarot show on Spotify Live once a week on Thursday evenings at 6 PST, where I just read the cards of anybody who just like raises their hand and, and, you know, I do that. I've written a tarot book called Modern Tarot about Mm -hmm. making tarot more accessible. And I'm a mom and I'm sober and I'm queer and all that other stuff. 
all of the things. We are such multifaceted humans. And I came to your work through your tarot book. And I really appreciate how accessible you make that and how you take a really dense subject and make it actually digestible. But tell me more about the Spotify thing. I've never heard of Spotify Live. Okay, so Spotify Live is a new, it's a new thing that Spotify has acquired. It was, it used to be this like, I don't know, that's actually boring. I'm not even going to get into it, but (laughs) it's Spotify Live. It's a live audio space where there are rooms and anybody can make their own room. Like if you, you could just go on and have, you know, a Spotify live account and make your own room and just invite people to it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I have a room. It's called Ask the Tarot. It's every Thursday at six on the West Coast and nine on the East Coast. And, you know, people raise their hand in the room or if they're shy, I invite folks to just send me on Instagram, find me on Instagram and then send me a question and I'll read it at a later date. But it's really fun. It's just really fun to just do live tarot reading. I think it's kind of entertaining, you know, for (laughs) folks and it's really fun for me. So it's a good time. I love anything that breaks the barrier between creator and consumer and makes it more accessible and and more human. Yeah. And like, I love the people who come to the room. Like there's regulars that are there every week. The chat is like bumping. People are super (laughs) supportive of each other. Somebody shares a problem and then the whole chat erupts with like, oh my God, we're sending you love, you know, just like, it's it's very sweet. Well, yeah. maybe you'll send me on the next one because that sounds really Oh my really God, fun. I would love to. Please come. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. So tell us more about the story of you and your sobriety and what that has looked like over time and what got you to where you are now. Sure. Okay. So uh, let me see. So I grew up in a crappy little city in Massachusetts called Chelsea. It's a very alcoholic mm-hmm. city. If a city can be alcoholic, I think that mm-hmm. the city is a little alcoholic. And I had alcoholism in my family. and you know, was even warned in advance by my mom, just being like, you know, you have alcoholism in your family, you have to be careful as I got older. But I was so different than my family. Um, My family were just these sort of, I don't know how to explain. I mean, it was the eight, we're talking about the 80s, right? So they were really backwards in their thinking as everybody was in my city about every social issue imaginable. And I was Mm -hmm. not. And I just was like, these people don't know what they're talking about. 99% of the time, they're so wrong about life. Like, why would they be correct about this? You know, it's just another thing that they're scared of. They're so fear based. They're scared of the world. And I'm not, you know, I Mm -hmm. went out into the world with gusto. I was goth, uh, (laughs) slash punky, whatever, um, which was very punishable by the culture in the 80s. Like, I would get things thrown at me on the street and stuff like that and would get beat up for the way that I looked. But, you know, I found my people, I found my other goths and and I found a fake ID really early <laughs> and I started buying alcohol. And I was like, all the skaters called me, the underage skaters uh, in Boston would call me ID lady because they could just <laughs> run up to me and just give me two bucks and I'd get them, you know, I'd do uh-huh. my nightly rounds and I'd buy everybody their 40s and whatnot. And then I would keep the change. Yeah, and I was going to say, I made a profit <laughs> off of that. I did make a little profit. I definitely yeah. bought my own, you know, vodka, whatever. And I would just get drunk and I loved it. And it made me feel wild and free and the way that I felt like I always was supposed to feel. And it seemed like it made wild things happen. You know, mm. when everyone was drunk, weird things happened. And I liked that. And so I think the first time I realized that maybe, you know, there was something weird about my drinking was I, one of my first boyfriends, when I was a senior in high school, we, it felt for some reason like a more adult kind of a boyfriend situation, mm-hmm. um, maybe because we were both getting a little older. I was like maybe 18 or something like that. And 
we met up in Boston and usually we just always, everyone met up on the weekends and we partied and stuff and found places to party by the river or somebody's house. But we met up during the week and kind of didn't know what to do with each other and Mm. just like got alcohol and just like sat drinking. And I was like, oh, this is this weird that we don't know what to do with each other, but drink, you know, I remember thinking that. And then I just sort of rolled with it though. So, you know, fast forward out of my teens and into my early twenties and the early nineties, I ended up in San Francisco, came out as queer and found a really incredible world happening in San Francisco at that time. I mean, honestly, it was a really, in a funny way, really similar. When I was a teenager, I was like, you know, really a weirdo for being goth. And I got a lot of shit for it. But Mm -hmm. then I kind of found in this weird way, I just literally walking through Boston, turned a corner and found this group of punks, skaters, you know, weirdo, arty people, goths, all hanging out together on the library steps. And that became my community. And it was really, there was a ton of drinking. The same thing happened in San Francisco. I stumbled into this club my friend told me about, and there were all of these queer punks And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that there are queer people who are punk. This is amazing. And that became my world. And, you know, they're artists and, you know, they're, they're just like weirdos. They're not trying to be normal gay people. They're reveling in their outsiderness. And that culture happened in bars, which isn't to say that there weren't sober people or other people there were, but for somebody who was already sort of on an alcoholic path like I was. I was just Mm. psyched that I was in a bar every night, you know? I remember going, having to go to a doctor, you know, just for a checkup or something. And, you know, they ask you those questions like, how often do you drink? And I always wanted to be honest about them because I wanted to know, like, you know, and it felt to me like, well, if you're lying about it, then that's a problem. I didn't (laughs) want it to be a problem. I, 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 at the time it was mostly working for me and I was mostly having fun, right? I only laugh because I I totally lied about that. <laughs> and it you totally did, yeah, was within I mean, the context of, oh no, I can't really tell him how much I'm drinking. Right. No, I totally understand that. And I felt that impulse. But then I was just like, well, I no, like I I don't know. I just was like, if I'm lying, then it's a problem. Um mm-hmm. I mean, there had been consequences in high school. You know, I, I lost a job because of drinking, because I was too hungover to come in. I was had a had a weekend after school job as the receptionist at a hair salon and you can't call Mm -hmm. in sick at a hair salon. And I, you know, was calling in with hangovers and they fired me, but Mm. it just didn't seem like a consequence. I just was like, oh, well, who cares? Yeah, That's not my real life. My real life is with my friends and with this future that I'm going to have someday when I get out of this place, that's my real, going to be my real life. Nothing here matters. So I did when I was in my early twenties say that I drank basically every night and the doctor was like, you know, tell me about this. And I said, well, you know, I'm an artist and I'm a writer and I go out to all these events and they're always in bars. And she was like, well, why not just have a seltzer one night? And I just thought that was so Mm. weird. I was like, no. I mean, I was already in the habit. Yeah. I was in the habit (laughs) of not taking authority seriously at all, you know? And it it was really easy for me to just be like, oh, you don't understand my life. (laughs) I'm fine. You know? All right, dweeb. Yeah, totally nerd, doctor nerd, medical nerd. (laughs) So when it was working for me, it was great. It helped loosen me up to write. I started doing my writing drunk or drinking. I would go to a bar and I would write at a table in a notebook, drinking and chain smoking until the bar closed and they kicked me out. And I felt like mm. I was part of a tradition of writers who lived really hard and abused their bodies uh, for the sake of a higher consciousness or a sense mm. of adventure. These people were mostly men that did that lived like this. And yeah. I felt like it was 
if anyone ever expressed concern about me, I was like, that's sexist. Like nobody mm. cared that Jack Carroll, you know what I mean? Like Jack Carroll. Interesting. Jack Carroll yeah. could live like this. Right. No one said anything to Hemingway. Right. Hunter Thompson is off like mm-hmm. getting wasted and shooting his gun off in his yard and everyone thinks he's really cool. So <laughs> fuck you, you know, right. I'm even uh-huh. cooler. So there was this like weird purpose to it. And and there was a weird athleticism and feeling mm-hmm. of invincibility. I did and still do in different ways, like the sense that I'm like pushing my body to some sort of limit and surviving it. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's athleticism. I think that that is probably a very human impulse. Mm-hmm. And I think there are certain places that get that gets really celebrated and they're mostly male places yeah. with, you know, men in the military being soldiers, mm. football players, you know, athletes, men are allowed. Yeah. yeah. Athletes, men are allowed to really put their body in sort of dangerous situations and they're praised for it when they kind of over- survive it. Mm-hmm. And women are not, you know, and I'm somebody who is drawn to sort of extremes. And so one way that it really manifested early on was through drinking and doing mm-hmm. drugs and drugs came next. I hadn't really done drugs till I moved to San Francisco. And not, I, I had already decided in my life that I would always say yes to drugs because I wanted to experience. And to me, that mm-hmm. was, you know, a meaningful experience. And so it was like, like they say in AA, whereas I'm somebody who did get sober in AA, I heard a lot. There was like, First, it was fun, and then it was mm. fun with consequences, and then it was consequences. Mm-hmm. And that really resonated for me. You know, first yeah. it was really fun, and then it was fun with consequences. And again, because I was like punk, broke, and had pledged my life to being this sort of bohemian writer who was queer, you know, and writing from the margins, my stakes were pretty low. I had really low rent. I didn't go to college. You know, if I showed up hungover for work, I worked in a bookstore. Like, who really yeah. cared, you know? Right. So I had set my life up in a way to mitigate consequences. You know, if Mm. I could have had a different type of life and there would have been consequences, but in my punk life, there wasn't. And everyone was drunk around me and doing more, living more or less the same life that I was. And I definitely found the people who would go hard with me and they Mm -hmm. were like, you know, my besties. So I do remember there was this one night I was doing something uh, called Sister Spit that I had started with my friend, Cindy Anderson. It began as an all girl weekly open mic night. And now we're still doing it, but as like a tour. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So I remember, you know, we were doing it weekly in a bar. We got to drink for free as the people who brought the crowds to the bar. And I was drunk every every night of Sister Spit. I was drunk. And I remember being really drunk and like sitting down with my, I don't know what number beer it was, but I had a fresh giant beer. I remember that. And I remember sitting down and really feeling how drunk I was and thinking like, oh, wow, you're drunk and you're going to keep drinking. And then it was almost like a voice from outside of myself just said, it's time. Mm. And I understood what it meant. And it meant it's time to stop drinking like this or drinking at Mm. all. And I often think about that, like, what the hell was that? And what if I had like my, uh, maybe it was a weird crossroads or like a turning point for me that I would be telling a different story today, perhaps Mm. if I stopped right then, but I didn't. And cocaine started showing up for holidays, <laughs> special mm. occasions, you know, and then those special occasions became more frequent. They were weekend, you know, was a special occasion. Mm-hmm. And then why not do cocaine on a Wednesday night? And, you know, mm. something I didn't realize, and I learned again from being honest with another doctor at a different clinic <laughs> when filling out, you know, what do you do? And I wrote down all the drugs I was doing. And it really, the list had grown since the first doctor who'd asked me that. Mm. I learned that when you drink and do cocaine, it creates a third chemical in your body so that from then on, once you drink, your body is expecting 
cocaine. Oh yeah. Okay. That makes and sense. So to it want yeah. And and I that made sense to me because that's what it felt like. I would have mm-hmm. a beer and suddenly be like, okay, where's a line? And yeah. It's an unsatisfied craving. Right? It really is. It really, really is. And so, you know, I did that for a while. A friend turned me on to crystal meth and I was like, oh, I do cocaine. Mm. That's like black and white TV. And this is like, I just got cable, you know, mm. with, with crystal meth. It was like even sharper. And I mean, when I just think about like what I used these drugs to do, like I used these drugs to talk my face off at people who probably wished I would shut the hell up. You know, <laughs> these are just such chatty, chatty drugs. And mm. I just remember just talking and talking and smoking and smoking. And it's like so gross. But at the time when I was in it, it felt like I was radiating some sort of like cosmic glow Mm. or something. I got in a relationship with somebody who would mostly use drugs with me, who introduced me to heroin. I felt like it was fine because I wasn't shooting it. I was snorting it. I Mm. felt like it was fine because we would only do it once a week. But then we would always have a little leftover from that Mm -hmm. one time. So then we'd do a little the next night. So it was never really, we bought it once a week, (laughs) but we were doing it more than once a week. And, you know, the consequences just really started building up even in my life. And then the kind of like very like low, low standards that life that I was living, I did a geographic, which folks might know as, you know, everything in my life is wrong. It can't possibly be that I'm have a weekly heroin (laughs) habit and then I'm an alcoholic. It's, it's San Francisco. It's the tech companies are ruining yep. it. I'm moving yep. to LA. So I moved to LA and my using, it was very interesting because I kept drinking the way that I did when there were people around me, but nobody was around me. I had no friends. And so I'd be getting like blackout drunk by myself in my kitchen every night and yeah. just realizing like, wow, okay. Like I was seeing it. Some part of me was seeing it, but didn't want to do anything about it. Didn't mm-hmm. know how to do anything about it. I would do other things like read a book about spirituality. Um, I'm like, I need to meditate. I mean, I need face (laughs) cream. I need to start taking care of my skin. You know, it'd be all these other things. Yeah. You want to know what what my search was, was yoga to quit drinking. Because I was like, these yoga people, they have their lives together. Maybe they'll fix me. Right. Totally. Yeah. I love that. You know, when I worked in bookstores, I would be like, you know, all the employees got to kind of oversee different... uh, shelves. And I was like, I was a self-help shelf. Like I loved just going over there being like, I'm going to, I'm going to organize self-help and just like reading all these books, just (laughs) being like, something's going to download and I'm going to feel better. And, and I can keep drinking alcoholically because that's what I wanted. I wanted to keep drinking alcoholically, but feel okay. Mm -hmm. So LA didn't work out, came back to San Francisco. And now I was doing things like doing drugs at work because I needed to, to kind of stay, you know, this wasn't an everyday thing. The fact that it wasn't every day, I let that mean a lot more than it should have, you know, like it's not every day. I just do that sometimes, but it's like, when should you ever be doing drugs at work? Right. I was working at this little bookstore and I'd lock the door and shut it down so I could go do a line Mm. so I could get back to work because Mm -hmm. I had been up all night partying Mm. and I was getting older and wearing out my body. You know, the effects of crashes from uppers were getting a lot harsher. I would just go on crying jags. I remember calling in sick to work because I couldn't stop crying. And that was a result of just the chemicals in my body being such a mess. I remember like passing out when I wasn't drinking like the next day because I was so messed up, you know, mm-hmm. and dehydrated, calling in sick to readings and to creative things. I'd never mm. done that. I'd even really been a pretty hardcore worker just despite my alcoholism because I didn't have a safety net. I knew there was no one to catch me if I couldn't pay my rent. And so that mm-hmm. wasn't an option. I would go into work half dead. And so then when I would start calling in sick to work, that was sort of like, oh. Mm. And then when I started calling in sick to creative events, I was like, oh no, like that's your reason for living. Like that's what you take seriously. 
And they started realizing that I understood the concept of a bottom. I had friends that were sober and I realized that under every bottom was another bottom. I just got this vision almost of infinite bottoms and understood that there wasn't just that one bottom that I'd hit and I'd know it. And then it was time. Like I'd hit that bottom and then I could kind of metabolize it and make it okay somehow through dark humor, through the company I was keeping, whatever. And then I just hit another bottom that was even worse. And at one point in my life where maybe like, oh, I could never let that happen to me, were things that were happening to me yeah. and I was accepting, right? And that, that really scared moves. Me. Yeah, it really, really does. So I did decide to stop. I went into therapy. I do have a little bit of depression and anxiety naturally. It became incredibly exacerbated by my drinking and using right. and the, the artificial ups and downs. I hit some real lows psychologically. I didn't ever try to kill myself. I wanted to just like never wake up. Like that's yeah. kind of where I landed is I just wanted to go to sleep and never wake up. Mm. And I realized that that was probably bad and scary. And the way that, mm -hmm. the way that I realized that my bottoms were progressing, I understood that my depression could maybe progress as well. Yeah. And that scared me. So I, you know, San Francisco is a city that has a lot of resources for people, which I'm really appreciative mm -hmm. of. And so I found this number and called it and I was like, I need to be in therapy. And they're like, are you afraid you're going to hurt yourself? And I'm like, yeah. And I couldn't tell if that was a lie yeah. or not, mm. but I didn't know if I was just saying that to get free therapy or if I meant it, I couldn't tell, but they gave me a therapist right away. And, and it really helped me to have someplace to unpack my drinking. Cause everyone that I was around were so everyone was invested in me drinking. Right. Nobody right. wanted me to get sober. I remember one time I tried to go be sober for like a week. And a friend mm. just was, looked at me, ordered me a whiskey sour and put it down in front of me and was like, mm. anyways. And I was like, oh, okay. oh wow. Yeah. yeah. And then there were people maybe like my sister who I'm very close to now. If I talked to her about it, she would absolutely be, you're an alcoholic, you need to stop drinking. So there, I didn't mm -hmm. feel like that was safe either because I didn't know that I wanted that. So right. my therapist was like, kind of, felt kind of impartial and I could just kind of talk to her about it. And so through therapy, I was able to stopped drinking for a little bit on my own for like a few months. I kind of made a pledge to myself that I would do that. And I did. And it was hard, but I could feel myself change. Mm -hmm. And I could tell that I was getting better. I felt better. And through that, I started understanding that I, that I had a problem with alcohol. Like alcohol had been a problem. And I, I couldn't look into the future about what that meant. You know, I just, it was too scary. I just knew that I had to kind of dry out for now. Mm. I didn't want to go to AA because I was like paranoid because I had dated people who got sober and went to AA mm -hmm. and like then didn't want anything to do with me. So I'd written this whole insane story in my head that like I'd go into AA and there'd be all these people judging me, you know, which mm. is like so, so, you know, and, uh, you know, to be fair, those people would have probably been very happy to see me come in and who knows how I would have taken that, you know, I would have might've taken yeah. that the, in the wrong way. So I didn't go for a while. And then I went on a tour to, you know, read my work and I started drinking on, on that tour and it just was like, boom, right back where I started. Just mm. big fights with my partner at the time, melodramatic, puking, just gross. And I could never get back. Like I, I had gotten such a big stretch of time. Mm. And then after I drank again, I could, I was just, I couldn't do it. I would do a little bit of time and then I would drink again. And I, mm. You know, me and my partner at the time had a really tumultuous relationship. So if we got in a fight, it would feel like an excuse to drink for me. And mm. I found myself even poking at him to kind of start 
not start yeah. a fight, but because <laughs> we were almost always in a fight, but I would just poke <laughs> to make it yeah. blow. Instead of diffusing it, I would right. just poke, you know, and then be like, well, I'm going to go drink. Mm. And luckily, a writing mentor was sober and had known that I was not drinking back when I was not drinking. We'd run into each other and I was like, oh, I'm not drinking. And they were just really cool and hands off with it. They just were like, oh, good for you. You know that they mm -hmm. didn't try to get into it with me, but they came to town and they were like, how's not drinking going? And I just mm. burst into tears and I was like, I can't, I can't stop drinking and I don't understand why. And it was like, you know, there were points when I was writing notes to myself, don't drink. Remember yeah. you don't want to drink. And then early in the morning and then in the, as the time wore on, evening approached, I would look at these notes that I'd written myself and I, and they, the notes scared me. I was like, you're mm. crazy. Why are you writing notes to yourself? Just go get a beer. Like you're fine. So my friend had gotten sober through AA and was like, do you want to go to a meeting? And luckily I worshiped this person and would do really anything and had always hidden my drinking from them because I respected their sobriety. It was something I thought was cool about them, mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't want them to judge me or think less of me. So I said, mm -hmm. yes. And we went to a meeting and it really changed my life. Like the way you said you saw those yoga people and they all looked like they had their life together. That's how I felt about everyone in this AA meeting. They had nice skin. Mm. <laughs> my skin was all blotchy and scabby. My hair was fucked up. I just looked like such shit at the end. I feel like vanity kind of got me sober in a way. I really hey, realized whatever like, works. Oh, wow. <laughs> whatever works, right? Totally. So yeah, so I, I started, uh, I went to my first AA meeting in 2003 and I haven't drank since then. Wow. And I'm so freaking grateful. I'm grateful for the AA model. That is a model that's very, very close to my heart. I feel like it, it does, you know, for me, it worked for me really well. Mm -hmm. I had great sponsors. I've had great sponsors. I've sponsored amazing people and seen their lives change. I'm a spiritual person. So the whole higher power thing was fine for me. It actually mm -hmm. reinvigorated my magical practice. So I'm grateful mm. for it for that too. I very recently, just in like 2020, started introducing, um, I ate magic mushrooms. I ate psilocybin. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I have, um, and that was something that took me about five years to kind of walk up to doing because mm -hmm. I was, I couldn't trust that it wasn't just me relapsing or yeah. looking for a loophole to get fucked up or, you know, mm. telling myself I was doing it for these so kind of psycho spiritual reasons. Right. But you know, what if I was lying to myself? I mean, it was a lot of years of thinking about it, doing tarot readings about it, making sure all my sponsors, my sponsees were through the 12 steps because I didn't want mm. them to feel, feel like they had, they couldn't work with me anymore and then have to start over again with a new sponsor. And then I fucked up, you know, their progress. I didn't want that. So I just kind of got to a place where it felt like, okay, to try. And so I did. And that was almost two years ago. And since that time, I have eaten mushrooms one, one other time. And it hasn't, provoked any cravings in me to drink mm. or do to do any substances that are not psychedelic. I haven't done any other psychedelic substances. So it feels like very um, tricky and like dangerous to be talking about it in a sober context because, you know, I know that at some point in my life, I probably could have heard somebody say that and been like, oh, good, I'll stop drinking and just do mushrooms every day. Because mm. one thing about getting sober, I recognized it taught me that you can be addicted to anything, even something mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily have addictive properties, you know, yes. according to science, you can be addicted to people, you can be addicted to food. It's just how you're using something that's mm -hmm. producing a, a brain chemical in you. So, you know, if I had decided that I wanted to ingest psilocybin early in my sobriety, it would have been pretty devastating for my sobriety. Yeah. I think it did take me 
two decades of sobriety to feel like it's something that I can consider. And I'm, I'm really thoughtful about it. And if it feels like it's bad for me in any way, triggering cravings, triggering anything like that, then it will be reevaluated. But yeah, so that's something. It ha- and I mean, it has driven a wedge between me and AA mm, because- I'm going to ask about that. It, yeah. In AA, it's like, no, if you come in and being like, I'm sober, but sometimes I do mushrooms, you know, it's, yeah, it's your, you know, most people will be like, guess what? You're not sober. And I respect right. that. You know, I respect how hardline AA is. I mean, it saved my life and it's hardline for a reason. You know, people are afraid or have like a almost fear-based respect of the structure, its original mm-hmm. structure, and they don't want to mess with any of it because it works. And so few things have been helpful to people who need that kind of help. So I respect all of it. But that is one thing that, you know, um, I've been kind of working with being like, oh, I've, I always felt like AA sort of owned my sobriety in this way. Interesting. And by choosing to experience psilocybin mushrooms, I'm like, oh, I guess I own my sobriety. That felt yes. really scary for a minute. It felt really scary, but so far so good. Hi, y'all. Callie here with the Sober Stories team. All right. If you're anything like me, you've been feeling the heaviness of what it is to be human these days which is why I've turned to BetterHelp. I've been using their platform for a few months now, and I can honestly say that my life has improved so much. Not only can you chat with your therapist whenever's most convenient for you, but I'm a huge fan of their online journal, which allows me to share my entries with my therapist if I want. And as somebody who has been able to express myself through writing the easiest, it has been a true game changer when it comes to actually sitting down in a therapy session with my therapist and getting to the nitty gritty of it. She gets to see where I am before we even meet. And that has just truly elevated therapy. And that's why we are happy to be sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a digital platform that offers licensed therapists trained to listen and help you. BetterHelp has a network of over 20,000 therapists with a broad range of expertise, giving you online convenient access to support. It's easy. You fill out a questionnaire describing your specific needs, and you'll be matched with a therapist in less than 48 hours, which is wicked fast when it comes to therapy. In addition to your secure video or phone therapy sessions, you can exchange unlimited messages with your therapist between meetings as well. No overwhelm, no barriers to entry, just help when you need it. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash sober stories. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash sober stories. Thanks y'all. One of our goals here in this space, in this podcast, is to talk about the nuance of sobriety and how it can look different for all sorts of different people because we all have completely different lives, lived experiences, backgrounds, histories. And I really like this framing of I own my sobriety and going into it and understanding like what is the root cause of why I'm choosing to ingest the substance or where is this coming from? And also the distance that you gave yourself from all substances for 20 years before it was something that was ever even considered. I think that there's, I I did not get sober through the 12 steps. That's not my lineage. That's not my tradition. And I think when we tell more nuanced stories and we share different perspectives, it's just opening more doors for people. It's giving people more pathways by which they can see themselves making change. So I'm really glad you brought that up and brought that into this conversation. And I'm also interested to like hear about how that has evolved your own belief on your own sobriety and like, what does it feel like now to own your own sobriety? I mean, it's, it's kind of scary to think that like, I'm just making these choices for myself because 
you know, one thing that I kind of, that I learned in AA is that like, I have an alcoholic brain that can't mm-hmm. be trusted to make healthy choices for itself. And I can see why that could rub people the wrong way and feel like I don't, that feels condescending. And I don't want to be part of a program that tells me that about myself. But when I came into AA, I did have an alcoholic brain that didn't know how to make good choices for itself. You know, Mm. all I did was trick myself into drinking again with, you know, fake logic. So I get it, but it, I did feel like I came into a, a phase of development. I don't know what else to call it where I felt like I could take a step back from that and mm. reevaluate if that was still true for me. Mm-hmm. And what does my alcoholism look like today as somebody who is not in the throes of cycles mm-hmm. of craving, like I was when I first came in, as somebody who's just learned a whole lot about alcoholism, not only through AA, but just through reading about alcoholism, and reading mm-hmm. about addiction and the brain and neurology. I'm just, I'm always so fascinated by stuff mm. like that. Yeah, it's good so, stuff. It's, it is good stuff, right? I mean, it's scary that I don't, you know, I, I'm responsible for my own choices. I don't get just mm. to fall back on AA and, and say like, well, I'm, AA says I can't do this or, or any yeah. structure or person, you know, they say I can't do this, so I can't do it. It's like I have mm. to make these choices for myself. And who knows, maybe I'll end up, reg- I don't think I'll regret it. I think I would have regretted it by now, even yeah. if I end up deciding that I don't want to any longer be opened, that I'm no longer open to psychedelics. Like that will just be another choice that I make. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is a little, I felt like I was on a tightrope, you know, I'm used to having it's a kind lot of, of It's support. kind of like punk sobriety. You're making your own way, doing your own version of this that feels aligned and feels right. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about the neurology or in, in the neuroscience of this, it makes perfect sense to me that you got 20 years of distance from a chemical substance and then you were able to trust yourself again. You were able to believe that your brain is making solid decisions that are going to be supportive of you because that was a long time to give your brain time to regenerate and time to heal. And when we're in these early stages of sobriety, it's such a tender time. And we feel like, you know, I can't trust myself to make the right decision. And, and in some ways that's true because our brain has just been hijacked by these substances and it's really starting to alter our perception and alter our impulse control and our decision making because it's all you know prefrontal cortex stuff though i can nerd out nerd out about that stuff forever i love that i can too but i want to hear about how your writing has evolved since you got sober you know you talked about this lineage of artists and creatives who use their body and go to the extremes and open up their minds through all these substances. And I know you've written many books since then. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, um, I was, you know, scared as anyone is to stop drinking in regards to my writing, because my writing had become so interwoven with my drinking, like they just fed each other. They were Mm. activities that always happened together. And I didn't realize how much my identity as a writer was tied up with my identity as somebody who drank heavily. Mm. I mean, I felt so embarrassed when I first got sober to realize that I was having an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh God, if you had said, oh, you some, you're somebody who you identify as like a big drinker. Like I knew intellectually that sounded weird and gross. <laughs> it was true. It was really true, yeah. you know? And I was like, well, what does this mean about me now? And it didn't matter that logically I could see the fault of it. Emotionally, it felt like something was being taken away from me and that I hmm. wasn't who I, it was like my ego ideal of myself was suddenly getting chopped at the knees and I just didn't know who I was and then bring the writing into that. And it was really scary. Um, 
it was, especially, I also want to say like writers are really superstitious people, you know, mm, and like, right. And I think that's because like writing is so mysterious. Like why does it work sometimes and not other times? Why does mm. some, why can some people write in this great way and other people struggle? Like it's very mysterious. And so it's really easy to attribute it to things outside of yourself, like drinking, mm. you know, and this idea that I needed to drink in order to write was really tricky. What I did find is that it wasn't true, but writing, <laughs> I had always thought I loved to write, right? I loved writing. I loved going out to the bar and sitting down and writing. It was like, when I loved it, but I actually loved being drunk. I really mm. loved drinking and being drunk. Mm -hmm. So take that away and be sober sitting down with your story is really hard to stay in it and to stay present. Mm. I would get lost and write for hours while I was drinking. Cause I just was drinking, smoking, drinking and smoking. Yeah. And I was like lost, but without that, I was all too aware of other things I could be doing. Am I hungry? Should I get up and get a snack? Have you written mm. enough yet? It was a lot harder for me to stay in it. So I wasn't a worse writer without it. You know, alcohol wasn't doing the writing for me, but it was, you know, making it so that I would stay in my writing. But, you know, mm. As it started to fail in all areas of my life, it failed me in writing too. Like my writing was shit. I kept trying to write my book Valencia over and over and over again because mm -hmm. I thought that was the cool book because I got like drunk in it. You know, it was this book about mm -hmm. partying. I was like, oh, it's my, what's my next partying book? So, you know, <laughs> it was stunt. I was stunted creatively. It didn't matter if I could, you know, sit down and write for hours. I was writing shit. Just like I wasn't growing as a writer because I wasn't growing as a person. So I did have to relearn how to stay with it and I don't know, give myself treats, you know, cookies or something, you know, um, <laughs> little carrots dangling for you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> My favorite writer is Eileen Miles and their writing's always been really important to me and they're, they're sober and they write about being sober. They have, they have stories about when they also drank and stuff in their work. And I remember the first summer I was sober, I was in Boston and we're both from there. And I, I was rereading some of their poetry while I was there. And I kind of did some math from what something I read. And I realized that the book that I was reading that I loved so much, they wrote when they were like newly sober. Mm. And it filled me with such joy. I was like, oh my God, this book that means so much to me. I've reread re it a million times. They were sober when they wrote this. And wow. I was like, oh, I'll be able to be sober and write things too. It just gave oh. me a lot of hope. Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. I was like on the train in Boston when I realized it. And I was like, there was like sun coming through the window. It was like a butt brown train. And I was like, like oh. the birds started chirping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that that's a really universal concept beyond writing this idea of an yeah. identity crisis. So many of yeah. us have so much writing on our identity as a drinker and what we do or do not do when we are drinking. And, you know, I've worked with people who own liquor stores or, you know, are sommeliers or, you know, even in the work that we could do can literally be in the alcohol field. Yeah. And it's really hard when you have that cognitive dissonance between, I know this isn't working for me. I know this is bad. And my whole identity is this. This is everything I am. What am I without it? And, you know, I, a very different situation. But when I quit drinking, I remember the Christmas before I quit drinking, I had a two-year-old. I was a new mom. I had gone like hard into mommy wine culture. That was like the mid to 2015. It was like very, the, the rise That's of the memes. Yeah. So yeah. I'd, I'd really wrapped my identity as a new mom around being the wine mom. And I remember the Christmas before I quit drinking, 
every single gift that I received was wine or wine paraphernalia. And I was like, oh, that's a little embarrassing. Wow. But but yeah. when I when I stripped it away, it's like, well, I built this whole identity. Like, who am I without this? And that can be a real barrier to people making change. How did you get beyond that barrier? I mean, I, I guess I just had to have a certain amount of acceptance. I didn't trust that I wasn't going to become a nerdy, boring, terrible person, but, you know, <laughs> but I was so desperate. I was really, really desperate. Like when I first went into AA, you know, I was like, well, this is where we go when we're meant to be. I thought it was a support group for miserable people who weren't able to mm. drink anymore to go and be miserable together. Like I mm. really did. And I had just accepted it. I was already depressed. So it wasn't like that depressed me. I came in depressed. Everything was depressing. <laughs> My whole life was depressing. My brain chemicals were fucked uh, from drinking yeah. and using. And I just thought, okay, well, this is really tragic, but I guess this is my life now. And it just, mm. you know, after I sort of got a little time under my belt and got a little sober, I started to see that like, oh, this is actually going to teach me how to live my mm. life without alcohol in a way that's really fun and joyful. And, you know, I just kind of got over it. I accepted it first. I accepted this yeah. worst case scenario that I thought was upon me. And then slowly I realized it wasn't true, mm. right? That that wasn't my identity. And also I, I really love Buddhism and I've always been sort of Buddhism adjacent. Mm -hmm. And certainly this, the, the kind of call for spirituality that's within the 12 mm. steps pushed me a bit more into Buddhism. And I started going to recovery meetings at the Zen Center in San Francisco, which was incredible. Cool. And so, you know, in Buddhism, you're, they're like, you know, you're having an identity crisis. They're like, cool, that's because there's no you anyway. So, you know, <laughs> and I was you like, okay, that, yeah. right. Yeah. Cool. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, there's actually not even any me. So this is just all like monkey mind <laughs> playing, playing games with itself. Oh, so I really, I kind appreciate of that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's really funny. And as you have evolved, I would say objectively, again, as trying not to super fan here, you are not a boring, nerdy miserable person of a human at this point in time in your life. And I know one of the things you're doing right now is revisiting Sister Spit. So can you tell us a little bit more about Sister Spit, what it was originally, what it is now? And tell us what it's like doing it sober this time. Oh my God, this is such a great line of inquiry. Thank you. Um, Sister Spit started in as an all-girl open mic in 1993, 93, I think, me and Cindy Anderson, um, who was a, and is, you know, at the time she was doing slam poetry. Um, she was from Chicago, I was from Boston. We both kind of found each other in San Francisco and did this thing and drank heavily and used heavily. And, you know, we, we did it for two years as an open mic, took a break during which I was in a band. My band went on a little tour. I came back from that tour, not wanting to be in a band anymore, but still somehow wanting to tour. And mm -hmm. I thought, what if we take some writers on tour. My band was really bad and we managed to go on a tour. <laughs> These writers we know are actually very talented. Like, can we do it? And it was really, you know, a great idea at the right time because spoken word and poetry slams were sort of yeah. erupting in cities and people were suddenly interested in this kind of art. And we packed a couple vans full of some of the best writers we knew and we went across the country. It was incredible. It was life-changing for everybody in different ways to perform every night to roll into a town. You know, as as people who really identified as marginalized people because of gender or, you know, queerness, mostly class. We were pretty white. So there wasn't a lot of racial diversity. Um, but it was it was really empowering. And, you know, me and Cindy being like, I don't want to speak totally for her, but like we partied yeah. really hard. And we 
our joke now is we owe like everybody an amends. Like we just need to apologize to everybody <laughs> because we expected everybody to like buck up and mm. live like we lived. And we lived like hard partying alcoholics who were punk and had like low standards of living. We're like, what? Go sleep <laughs> on a floor. What's your problem? You know? So it was like boot camp. And I can't believe people came with us. But I think that with the lows were a lot of highs as well. You know, we did it for a little while. And then I honestly believe that it was our drinking and using that caused mm. me and Cinny to kind of estrange, become estranged from each other, our friendship. It kind of, it kind of tanked our friendship. It tanked sister spit because it ended up fomenting a lot of suspicion and jealousy between each other. Mm. And Cinny went on to do some stuff with sister spit without me and then didn't. And then I went on to do some stuff with, about, with sister spit without Cinny. Cine without me, I think did some like local San Francisco shows, maybe some tours, got some grants. Without Cine, I revamped the Sister Spit tour and started alone. And this was after I got sober, started taking like new generations of younger uh, queer writers on tour. Mm. And they were really successful because I had help at that point. I had help of people who could book the tours for me, get us into institutions. And so, you know, I did that for a while. And then I kind of bequeathed Sister Spit and all, a lot of, I had basically built a nonprofit around Sister mm -hmm. Spit and some other literary organizing I was doing called Radar Productions. And I kind of handed that off when I got pregnant and moved to Los Angeles because it was really a, a San Francisco sort of supported thing. And then the people who took over Sister Spit were doing tours and they had morphed it to be all queer people of color who were artists, which was really amazing. The, mm -hmm. the organization was then run by people of color. So that was like a no brainer to morph it like that. And it was really yeah. awesome and powerful. And then they stopped wanting to use the name Sister Spit, which happened right at the same time that I heard from Cine. We'd both gotten sober some years ago and made up, you know, mm. and I'm so I think we're both really grateful for each other's sobriety. And yeah. not only that we're both sober, but it just we're both on the same page and we can see, mm. I think, a lot of the fallout of our friendship for the alcoholic mess that it yeah. was, you know? And in a sense, like, we never have sat down and, and apologized for specific things. But it's like, I had already been sober for a little bit before Cindy got sober. And so when Cindy got sober and said to me, like, I'm really sorry, with like mm. tears in her eyes, that was enough. Like, I knew yeah. everything that she yeah. was apologizing for. I knew where she was coming from. It's where I was coming from too. I apologize mm. with tears in my eyes. You know, I mean, I'd never sat down and listed the specific things that yeah. I was apologizing for. I'm willing to do that, you know, as a sober person who's always willing to make amends for the wreckage my alcoholism has caused in other people's lives. But it's so, it just feels so good that we just have this understanding and that we're both like healthy. Mm. So when, when she called me and was like, hey, do you know that it's been 25 years since we first took <laughs> Sister Spit? on the road. Do you want to do a tour? I was like, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> you know, so it's been fun. You know, we, we started out with a really more ambitious idea that we were going to do the Pacific Northwest and then COVID people were dropping out monkeypox, all these things happened, mm. you know, it wasn't as smooth of sailing as we hoped it would be by the time the dates rolled around. So we kept our California dates. It was just three days, but man, being in the van with these people and I'm sober and Cindy's sober. Lynn Breedlove's always been sober on Sister's Bit. And, you know, just it was so incredibly cool. And just to 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 feel that we created something, even mm. as the little hot messes we were, that remains important to people. Like we did a big yeah. show in the Bay Area and so many people came out, obviously older people like us that were there, that they have nostalgia for this. And then young mm. people who 
heard about it and that it's like still has some sort of veneer of like relevance and coolness on it that brought younger people out was really amazing. So um, this fall, we're going to go to the East Coast and do some schools and do some some other spots. But yeah, I mean, it would cool. Any Austin dates by chance? Oh, man, we keep I it's a a hike to do it now. (laughs) It's a hike, but it's worth it. I mean, my gosh, here's the deal about it is that now that we have standards (laughs) um, and also want to bring, you know, I don't know, it's a little different that in the 90s, I felt like we could expect people to to live really low and people would do it. But now it's like people want a hotel room and I cannot fault anybody <laughs> for that, you know, and they want to get a little paid for their yeah. work. And that's important yeah. also, you know? So what we need is an institution, which is usually a university that mm-hmm. has a budget to bring us, you know, and we curate an amazing lineup of queer and feminist artists and writers and we'll bring them. And then once we're in a region and we have this like anchor show that kind of paved mm. our way there. We can do littler shows in other okay, places. Okay, cool. That might um, not be. I'll make my submission to the University of Texas and say, hey, hey, let's bring Sister Spit. Yes, bring Sister Spit. <laughs> Everybody listening, bring Sister Spit. We want to come to your school. <laughs> um, you know, we want to come to your art organization. I mean, we, we got a show with the Berkeley Art Museum and they paid us enough that we could bring people out. And they were our anchor show that made smaller shows in Los Angeles and San Diego possible. So yeah, please bring us out. You'll get me and Cinny and amazing other people. Cool. We don't know what kind of mix you'll get, but you'll love them. <laughs> so I don't want to miss out on asking you about your sobriety and your queerness and maybe even the queer community on a larger scale, like what it has been like to be sober in that space and see the space evolve. And I know this mix of queerness and bar culture is even still pretty strong and just curious what your take on all of that is. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a really big deal, right? I mean, bars used to, they're historically bars are the places where queer people could safely come together, mm-hmm. right? And especially if you just think when it was so illegal to be queer and that if you were caught being queer or, or known to be queer, you could lose your whole entire life. The stakes were so high. It must have been so incredibly scary and nerve wracking mm. for people to go against the grain that no doubt also alcohol helped. I mean, alcohol yeah. helps you be brave. You know, it helped me be brave. And so when the stakes were so high and just being yourself required so much bravery and bars were a secret hidden place that you could be yourself, it's, it's no wonder that there is, you know, that alcoholism is, can be a problem for queer mm. people. I mean, that, you know, wasn't my story in the 90s. It wasn't like it was the 50s or the 60s. But I feel like the community had become the patterns of community gathering had right. already kind of begun by then that it was part of the tradition. And I love queer history. I love those stories. I don't love the raids yes. on the bars, but I love the right. bravery and the the role modeling of these queer people who, against all odds, you know, stood up to authority and found each other and found the strength to be themselves. So yeah, and definitely I was already drinking alcoholically before I came out, but the fact that everything happened in bars hmm. made alcohol really available. But then, you know, honestly, when they weren't in bars, if they were in like a warehouse space or something or an art gallery, I'd bring alcohol with me. I mean, I just was a fucking alcoholic, you know, (laughs) and nobody, and I had a lot of alcoholics in my family and none of them were queer. So, you know, it's obviously they're not, you know, they don't cause each other, but I do think that there are special issues that, that queer people maybe have to deal with in getting sober, you know, which there are other places to hang out, but those places seem boring or nerdy when you're using, (laughs) right? 
But I think the same goes for straight people too. You yeah. know, I think it's the same thing. It's like those alternatives to what you're doing feel dumb <laughs> mm-hmm. when you're using. But you know, I I knew so many sober queer people in my life, even when I was drinking, you know, and some of them were my age, most of them were older than me, but they were all people I really respected. Mm. And I always had this thing in the back of my mind, like, well, if I ever do need to get sober, these people are cool, you know? So it was a little bit helpful to me. It didn't totally solve my problem. Obviously I still had like the identity crisis and everything, but it, it was a bomb to be like, well, do I think that these people X, Y, and Z over here, you know, whose writing I've loved forever, who I think are the coolest people, do I think they're boring nerds? No, of course not. So that that was helpful. There's a lot of really great examples of queer people who live vibrant, weird, queer lives. And they're still that doesn't make them like assimilationist queers. They're still radical or whatever, you know, thing you prize as a queer person as part of your queer identity. Mm -hmm. You know, there you can still be all of those things. In fact, I remember walking home from a meeting one night and I I ran into uh, the artist Beth Stevens, who is sober and is the, a partner of Annie Sprinkle, and together they make art together. Um, and Beth is sober, and Beth's been sober for a really long time and is queer. And Beth just stopped me, and I remember we were standing under like a streetlight. It was dark, and it felt like like we were on a stage, or like Beth was on a stage. <laughs> and Beth just was like, "It is the most radical thing you can do is to stop drinking. This <gasps> world wants yes. your queer creative self to be." disempowered, inebriated, sloppy, self-loathing, unable to produce. Like it is so radical that you are giving yourself back your power, your autonomy, your consciousness, your intelligence. Like, and I was like, holy crap. Like it really (laughs) moved me. It really, really moved me. This like little speech she gave me about it actually being radical because it's true. It really is a really radical thing to do, you know? Another time that something kind of weirdly similar, I was hanging out. This is after I was sober for a bit. I was hanging out with these two queers that I thought were really cool. They were like artists. They were hot messes, but in that way that they looked really cool (laughs) and they were young and they were making interesting work. And I knew they were on a lot of drugs. They weren't doing it around me because they knew I was sober. But so it was this weird little gap between us being able to really hang out. But we were spending a little time together. And I remember one of them being like, I'm just a hedonist. I'm a hedonist, you know, (laughs) and me. And I was like, oh man, I want to be a hedonist. That sounds so cool (laughs) to be a hedonist. And then I'm like, wait though, what is the definition of a hedonist? Somebody who always wants to feel good. I am a hedonist. It was actually a hedonistic act for me to stop drinking and using because it didn't feel good anymore. I was depressed. I was sick in my body. I was, you know, like sick in my skin. I was deluded and miserable. Mm. And I was like, oh, I am, you know, it's good to remember that. Like, oh, if, if drinking and using just made me feel like a fairy princess who's just like radiant and buzzing around and that's not what it was, you know, right. I might, I don't think I'm deluded in that way anymore that I think that's what it was, but that still catches me off guard sometimes, I guess. And you're like, yeah. oh, if it worked, I'd still be doing it. It doesn't work, you know? Right. And that's the, that's the acceptance piece where you come to like, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. It stopped working. Yeah. I could not agree with the other Beth who stopped you on the streetlight and told you this radical thing, because I, I tend to also agree that my sobriety is rooted in my feminism and that it is a radical act of resistance to not be numb anymore and to not be complacent. And I think that's a really cool reframe to be able to say, actually, this is really fucking cool that I'm doing this. Yeah. They want to say yeah. that it's not, but it's actually really cool. And I think that more and more people are starting to to get that reframe a little bit. Totally. 
Because it's like, who wants you to think that drinking is cool? Like alcohol companies, like beer companies, you know what I mean? I'm like, who are you even supporting? Like, how is that radical? Like, it's really not. Yeah. Yeah. Giving big corporations tons of money. It's basically all it's doing. Yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. Oh my gosh. This has been so incredible. I could ask you a thousand more questions, but I want to (laughs) ask you one final question. If your story, the story of you and your sobriety were to be written into a story, and I know you write many memoirs, so maybe it's already part of one of them. But if it were to be written into a story, what would it be called and what kind of book would it be? Hmm. Maybe it would be called, It's Not an Astrological Transit, <laughs> Facing Your Problem <laughs> Drinking. I remember I, there was this Amazing. one part where like drinking, I was like, I'm just having a bad transit. I'm having, I don't know what's wrong with me, but it must be a bad astrological transit. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. I got sober in my Saturn return. So I resonate with all well of that. Well done. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, that's I hear awesome. all that. <laughs> that is what sign incredible. are you? I am a oh God, you're putting me on spot. A Gemini, Sun, Scorpio, Moon, and Rising. <gasps> well, you were born yes. to be an alcoholic and you were born to get sober. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I just got like a, a reading right on the spot. I appreciate that. <laughs> Michelle, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and your storytelling. If our people want to connect with you, which I know they will, where can they find you? And tell us more about your book that's out right now. Uh, The best place to find me is on Instagram right now. And my handle is at Michelle Tease, T-E-A-Z. You're blue check marked now. I saw that. I am blue check marked. I had to get blue check marked because there's a scammer who imp- was impersonating me. They and followed me. To- and I was like, oh, Michelle T followed me. Oh, I'm going to find you and follow you okay. right now. Thank I, you. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, if you think you're following me or you think I'm following you and suddenly I'm, I, I seem to be trying to ask you yeah. for money <laughs> for tarot readings. That's not me. That's I'm a never bummer. I'm going to ask you for money. It is a real bummer. And that goes for all tarot readers because yeah. I'm not the only one it's happening to That's everybody. so interesting it's that that specific niche is having that problem, but I see a lot of it on on social media. It's awful. It really, it plugs into people's sense of yeah. wonder and spirituality and specialness mm-hmm. and like cosmic attention. And it's bad. It's, really, mm. it's it, These people are just so, I'm sure they're, they're desperate and they've got their reasons that they believe they're yeah. doing it, but it's, they're really taking advantage of vulnerable people. So, so look for the blue check mark if you're looking for yeah. Michelle on Instagram. <laughs> look for my blue check mark. And I do have a new book out and it's called Knocking Myself Up, a memoir of my infertility. And it's about what happened when at the age of 40 with no partner and no health insurance, but a lot of time sober, mm. um, I decided to go and try to get myself pregnant. Amazing. And everything that happened after that. And it didn't, you know, it took a village to get me pregnant. It's spoiler alert. But it's a really, it's a pretty fun story. Yeah. I can already think of a couple of people who I think should go get that book because it is their story, right? In a nutshell. But oh, that's great. This yeah. has been so wonderful. I just really admire you and your work and how candidly you're talking about all of these complicated things. And the fact that you chose to come on here and talk about this in a nuanced way is, is really brave. And I appreciate you thank immensely. You. So Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Michelle T. Who else wants to road trip with me to the next Sister Spit event? Wasn't that a fun conversation? 
If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends. Mm-hmm.